$250,000, what would you do with it? Well, the New Jersey Coastal Coalition, based right here on Absecon Island, is building the New Jersey Resiliency Institute, which is only further going to strengthen the relationship the towns have with the Coastal Coalition when it comes to protecting against sea level rise. And on this episode of the Something in the Air podcast, I'm joined by Dr. William Thomas, who lives in Ventnor. He's traveled all across the world, has lived in Ventnor twice. He's here for the second time to tell us about what his work is with the Resiliency Institute. We're also going to hear about his time in Papua New Guinea. Uh, let's just say it's very interesting and maybe a little gory what he was studying there. So tune on in to Something in the Air podcast. I'm meteorologist Joe Martucci at the Press of Atlantic City. Let's dive in. We now welcome on Dr. Bill Thomas. He is the director of the New Jersey Resiliency Institute. That is the outreach arm of the New Jersey Coastal Coalition that has been around uh, for just about 10 years. Dr. Thomas, thanks for being on. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. So you were brought on by uh, a friend of both of ours, Tom Quirk, uh, last summer when the state awarded uh, grant money to establish this Resiliency Institute. What I want to know just kind of off the bat is why should the people of the Jersey Shore care? What is the biggest thing they're going to see out of this? Well, I think it is as background, the, you know, if you live at the shore, you know that flooding is increasing. No matter how you feel about climate change or any of that stuff, you know that you have water in your street more often than you used to. And that's backed up by science. We know that uh, sea level has risen here over the last hundred years and that what we're calling nuisance flooding outside of storms is increasing exponentially. So, um, that has a real impact on your life because your car may have salt water damage now. You may not be able to get your kids to school. You may have to plan your day around the tides now. You know, unlike prior years where you just got in the car and took off down the street, there might be some flooding. And as you know, if you have salt water on your uh, rims for very long, you'll be getting a new car. Yep. So um, there's a movement amongst, you know, not only uh, the people who, you know, are associated with the Coastal Coalition, which are 39 different uh, municipalities, but NJDP, the insurance people, FEMA, the Army Corps, to do something on a uh, timely, uh, practical level to help people deal with flooding. We're in the midst of it now. It's, you know, we, we see a lot of uh, planning, you know, that's going to take place in 2030 and 2050, and that's all great and things that have to be done. But right now you have to learn how to deal with it so that you live with the re your reality of flooding doesn't negatively impact your life. 1.9 inches of sea level rise uh, per year between 19, I'm sorry, per decade, between 1993 to 2017. Um, you know, Rutgers University put this huge report forecast an 83% chance of at least an additional 11 inches of sea level rise by 2050. You said the schools, which I think is a great point because we actually did a study on this and, and a research, pro, um, you know, a piece on this for the press where seven out of 11 Atlantic City schools will have a chronic risk of flooding by 2030. Um, so, you know, and, and that means something with at least an annual flood on the property. So it is something to definitely be 
concerned about, right? And of course, being Atlantic City, we're always ground zero at the Jersey Shore for this climate change, sea level rise research. Um, and Dr. Thomas, I mean, you're you're uh, you're familiar with the area, of course. You know, you live on Obsequian Island now, uh, but you're actually an Ohio guy growing up. So I, I have to ask, you know, what brought you to New Jersey? Well, I I went to Marietta College, and um, I went, went, you know, one of my best friends is a fellow named John Van Dyne, and if you know, Van Dynes build the lifeboats. Yep. So when I came out of the uh, college, I went to work in the steel industry in the 70s, and the steel industry in America collapsed. So rather than continue to dig in, I, you know, was on the phone with John, and he said, just come out here. There's always work at the Jersey Shore. And right. I was young and, um, you know, able to do all the things that you can do here, drive a truck, deliver cabs, waiter, bartender, you name it, I've done it. And because, you know, it's, it's such a great place if you're like that and young and able to do those things, I always wanted to travel. Now, I had, you know, I grew up, I, you know, like a lot of folks, but we had eight people living in five rooms. And, you know, my folks were oh. wonderful. And I, you know, I, they're not here anymore, but I, I love them to death. But they took everybody in. There was no, yeah. and nobody was paying rent. You know. Wow. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of money when I grew up. So needless to say, I didn't ever travel. I came here. I was able to travel because people were glad that you'd leave in the winter and come back in the summer. Yeah. You're ready to go. So this kind of launched me and, you know, uh, my travels took me all over the world, you know, Africa, you name it, Australia, New Guinea. And because of that, I discovered that I wanted to get involved in these people environment issues, you know, and I thought that people were the problem. And I was able to go back to, to uh, get my graduate degrees and my doctorate uh, in anthropology. But basically, I funded my education by working here, leaving, going to school, or in one case, going to New Guinea for eight years in a row <laughs> and coming back here and working, making more money and going back to New Guinea. So I want to get to the New Guinea here. part. Prefer- uh, yeah. No, I want to get to the New Guinea part. But first, what was your favorite job at the shore? Uh, building lifeboats. Building the Van Dyne. So, so that's crazy. So, so you said he was a childhood friend of yours. So is he from Ohio? No, he went to- John's from here. You know, his family has been here forever. Um, oh, okay. They, John played baseball. <laughs> Uh, Marietta has, you know, a nationally, you know, renowned baseball program. And John yeah. was a player and coach there. Um, and uh, I think we got cut on the same day. <laughs> I I got cut from basketball and he got cut from baseball. And uh, we were reminiscing out on the rail and we became friendly. And, uh, you know, it just went from there. Easy. I mean, you really, th- I mean, Van Dyne is such a name here to, to bump into him. And really, I guess, kind of changed your life a little bit right absolutely, i mean absolutely, absolutely yeah so so you said you got um and i apologize did you say where you got your master's in doctoral arizona state arizona okay so you've really been all over yeah well, and then new guinea is a writer and lives you know up around new york uh was working on his master's on mark twain at arizona at the time i had gone from here to california another guy i knew here was move, working in the movie industry and they thought, you know, uh, because of all my experience in wilderness places, they needed uh, location people. And uh, I thought I had a job like a lot of people who moved to California who think they have a job and it, yeah. 
collapse when I got there. So Jeez. I ended up just scrambling. And my brother said, you're crazy. You're, you know, you're too smart not to get an advanced degree. And you might be able to do something that you love by doing it. So I went to Arizona State, just signed up for classes, and uh, eventually got a scholarship and was able to right. get a doctorate from Arizona State. I, I hear there's pools on campus over there. Is that true? There's an, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> there's swimming pools everywhere. There's swimming pools at the, you know, at the fraternity houses. It's, uh, it's, a- I thought you were spending too much time there. You were too busy learning. Yeah, that's right. I had, I was in the library 24. You're in the library. Exactly. Um, all right. So, so New Guinea, I, I do want to talk about this because this is really interesting. You have your own website. Um, it's new Guinea Uh, check it out. Now you told me that you spent, um, eight months by yourself in the jungle which as this extroverted person, I think I would probably go insane. So I have to ask, how is it just being by yourself for eight months? Well, so, I mean, the natives visited me because okay. I'm like changing the channel, you know, <laughs> what the white guy's doing, um, Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always doing something interesting or stupid. And, uh, you know, so they would come down and, you know, like I, I would make popcorn on a campfire for them. Of course, they'd never seen popcorn. Um, that became a big hit. Uh, they like oh they liked it good oh yeah and I used to bake uh, bread in a mine a, a gold pan tin in a fire and uh, that became a big hit because you know you share everything gets shared and uh, that's how you make friends so uh, yeah it's you know it's it's like it's it's kind of funny you know when you people um, talk about philosophy and those sorts of things. Uh, all my sort of insights into me and everything else came from spending months looking at the top of the bo- inside of a tent, you know, and I did it in Africa and I did it here. And of course, if you're waiting for someone to go with you, it's not only is it a different experience, but it's a, it never happens for the most part. Mm. Right? That's true. So rather than wait for that or be stuck with someone else, so, you know, I went and uh, my first time in Africa, I got so sick. I had to crawl under the, the uh, vehicle because I, my legs weren't working. I had food poisoning and my legs went numb. So I had oh landed the vehicle until my legs came back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and all because I, you know, I was starving and I ate a can of food that I knew I shouldn't have eaten, but I was, you know, it tasted good at the time. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so you have those experiences and you have to get through them on your own. And, and I did. And uh, the same thing with, with New Guinea, it's a cultural immersion. Uh, learning, you know, to read people, to know when things are going sideways and you need to stand up for yourself or need to get out of there. Um, also, you know, learning the language, learning to uh, communicate, learning how they live, all those things when you got nothing else to do uh, really come to the forefront where, you know, a lot of folks in anthropology now, um, you know, work in the States and it's all valid, good work, but it wasn't for me. I wanted to really go back and live. I- I'm really interested in bushcraft. And I was lucky enough to spend time with people who could still make a stone axe, who could still, you know, they appreciated the metal, but they don't need it. They can live without it. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, I can't say I've ever done anything that exotic, so I can't, I can't even compare. But, you know, you, you have a world of experience, literally. Um, I did want to touch on this real quick because you were telling me before, uh, off camera that your, I think your first trip to New Guinea was to study cannibalism as well. Um, that, that's a topic I always have a little, I always have interest in, not that I'm a cannibalist, but like, just tell me, well, first of all, was there any cannibalism there? And what was like the premise of going? Um, well, the premise of going was that 
the Hewa, or the people I've spent the most time with over the last 30 years, um, are commonly referred to as cannibals. And they still refer to people as cannibals. In, in short, the story goes like this. Uh, they, they believe in witches, or they talk about witches. I, I wouldn't say they believe in witches. And witches um, are identified as people who eat the insides of others. And what happens is at night, a witch will sleep, you know, sneak into your hut and eat your insides, and the next morning you'll be dead. Now, there's no evidence of this, you know. So when, what happens is witches, are, and cannibalism, of course, is one of the nastiest things you can accuse someone of. Yeah, of course. And, and so my advisor and the first guy to spend time with the, the uh, Hewa said, I, I, I think this is an accusation aimed at um, righting a wrong that had been done in the past. It's the nastiest thing you can say about somebody. If people buy into it, you can get them to go kill someone else based on this accusation. Now, when he was there, his name was Lyle Stedman, he's, you know, he said, look, I, you see me sew people up and everything else. If, there's no, if these person's insides are gone, I'll cut them open and we'll know. And everybody just kind of laughed. Nobody was interested in the truth of the accusation. So what we think is going on is this, is that in this society until recently, there were no, there's no police. So right. if I want something from you, you have to be able to defend yourself. Um, and if you can't, I'll take it. And that often involves bloodshed or murders and everything else. So that was a, a really uh, in-depth interesting diversion from the Coastal Coalition Resiliency Institute. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to reset. On the other end, we're going to talk all about the work that you guys are doing here at the shore. This is the Something in the Air podcast. We are back to the Something in the Air podcast coming to you the first and third Wednesdays of every month. You can check out our episodes pretty much wherever you get your podcast, and that includes our new and improved website as well. Speaking of new and improved, how about the New Jersey Coastal Coalition? And that's why we have Dr. William Thomas, who's the director of the New Jersey Resiliency Institute that is part of the Coastal Coalition. So we just want to uh, kind of go back to the very beginning of this, which was you know, your role really came about when the state offered or um, uh, awarded you a $250,000 grant to help mitigate against coastal flooding at the shore. And I just want to, you know, kind of give us a dive about how that came to be um, and also talk a little bit about what you're doing that would be different than what's seen on the New Jersey DEP. Because one thing, if, you know, if you're at the shore, um, you know, you're probably familiar with the NJDP's plans to put up floodgates and to build a wall along the Atlantic Sea Expressway to reduce flooding. So where do you guys come in in this? Well, um, we come in because uh, our, our basic approach to things is this is not a, uh, this is an educational problem as much as it is a engineering problem. And with, you know, all problems that are modern. They're much more complex. And we're finding, we being the folks that are trying to communicate these problems, that 
it's not the sage on the stage anymore. You remember we went to college, the guy stood up there and he just talked. And you wrote notes, and if right. you can get it, tough. Well, this is a little, we, we're all invested in finding solutions here, and it, we can't afford to have the majority of people not get it. We have a much more diverse population, and diverse not only in their ethnicities, but their economics, how, how they're invested in things like flooding, um, and where they get their information from. So we, you know, if we're going to deal with flooding at the coast and building more resilient communities at the coast, engineering is definitely, planning is definitely a big part of this. But we have to communicate with people and get people engaged in buying into solutions. And that's where the Resiliency Institute comes in. Because there's no money in that in the short run, uh, there's only money in the long run. We approached uh, Vince Mazio, John Armato, who were at the time state representatives, saying that, look, Atlantic City is the economic engine of this part of the state. Um, it is going to suffer more than anybody else. It's got more year-round residents, and its you know viability is in question if we don't begin to deal with the issues around flooding and resiliency. They bought into it, got us a grant, and more importantly, they got us a grant because the money is going to go to actually doing things. You know, we're invested in not in buildings and not in, you know, uh, planning, but in producing things that can, people can use in the short run, for example. Uh, and, it's, you know, you talk, I think we mentioned it earlier, where the DCA is cutting the check soon, but we've been doing things that are um, sort of. And Bill, if I, could just, if I could just stop you for a second, DCA, just explain what that is. Oh, for Department everybody. of Community Affairs. All right. Uh, they fund a lot of good works in New Jersey, and they've been very helpful getting us through this process. As you can imagine, when you're spending other people's money, there's a lot of strings attached, and there's a lot oh, of yeah. people that, you know, the, the state budget funds this way. So they're supporting our efforts at outreach, communication, education, um, and what we're doing right now, you know, just as a, a sample, and when we have our, our opening, we'll be doing this much more intensely and I'm sure you know the press will be covering this but in Atlantic City for example they say 40 different languages are spoken okay the evacuation plans are in English you can imagine what the poor folks in emergency management are going to have on their hands should Sandy or you know a Sandy like storm have a direct hit on Atlantic City um, so we're working to you know uh, translate the evacuation plans into 40 languages using translation software uh, and working with uh, native language speakers when we can. And of course, we'll be doing more outreach once we get open to just try to facilitate that because you, you could, uh, one thing as an anthropologist, you know, I know how hard it is when you don't speak the language and how exhausting that is in a day-to-day -day grind, let alone an emergency. So um, that's one of the things we're doing. Uh, we've developed, and this is the Coastal Coalition and in, uh, with FEMA's, aid in the process of developing an app that will tell you where to move your vehicles when it's flooding, give you a warning. These, and, and of course, uh, the insurance people have been part of this, but this is the sort of practical day-to-day -day stuff instead of, geez, I don't know if those floodgates will work. Well, we, <laughs> we do know this, you want to move your car if it's flooding. And the locals know when and where to move their cars. A lot of people living here now are new to the area, they need to know. Insurance people are you know, on board 100% because they don't want to be buying cars for people if they can just move. Them. And those are the kind of day-to-day -day things you want. And, you know, as an anthropologist, it's the reason 
I think uh, the Coastal Coalition was interested in is that we got to, you know, you learn to work with disparate uh, groups, and that's what we have here. The app is very interesting, uh, where to move your car. And I think that would probably go in conjunction with your webcams that you're setting up along the Jersey Shore, too. I know you have a webcam in uh, Sea Isle City. I believe one's coming in Margate. Can you just talk about these webcams? Margate is online. Margate's online. So, you know, when I think of webcams, I think of beautiful pictures of the beach, maybe the Atlantic City boardwalk. But this, you guys are kind of zigging while others are zagging on this. What what are the point of these webcams and how can they tie into the app? Yeah, we're trying to point them at the access and slash evacuation routes uh, to the island so that you'll be able to, you know, if you commute to Atlantic City uh, to work, you know that the White Horse Pike, Route 30, Route 40, Blast Horse Pike have areas that flood. And yeah. it might not be one of those days where, you know, I, I, I follow your column and I, yeah, I follow the Stevens flood advisory and mm-hmm. all these things. But, you know, I, that's my, it's my life. <laughs> I'm supposed <laughs> to do this stuff. Yeah. Regular folks with kids to get to school and, you know, deadlines to meet often. Oh, my God, I, I got on the Black Horse Pike and it's what it's not even raining. What's going on? It's tidal flooding. The wind's coming from the northeast. You, you know better than I, Joe. So yeah. we're trying. One thing people are, though, is, you know, they might check their webcam or in this case, we're working to uh, put the webcams up, eventually hook them to um, either the the app or uh, some way get the app. So you'll get a warning, much like you will if your bank account, you know, if there's a $25 charge to your bank account and you're, if you're me, I'm married and my wife's on Amazon. Oh, (laughs) she'll just call me and say, "Uh, yeah, I just bought the Christmas presents. Perfect. Well, you can get the same warning now because of course, you know, the cameras on the beach are wonderful, but we're not selling tourism. We're, we're trying to keep, you know, the folks that are coming here from losing their cars or, find another way to the island. Not every route is going to be underwater. Right. So, you know, a place I, I want to talk about a little bit when it comes to the shore is the places that, let's say, don't have a bay up in Monmouth County, right? But there still is tidal flooding to worry about there. Can you talk a little bit about the work, you know, you guys are doing in those areas where you don't have a bay on one side, you really have the ocean or, or the Raritan Bay, depending on where you are? Well, when you get it, in this case, you know, they're far enough north that we're just beginning to engage with them. Um, but the process has been that um, we try to work with the local uh, emergency management uh, town managers slash politicians to find out what they, what are their needs. And in sort of uh, consistently, flooding insurance pops up, right? And there's a flood insurance program through FEMA that you can... Um, get points for by doing certain things. One of the other things that the, um, you know, for example, asking your, your, uh, putting, make sure your building department requires that there's a certain height, right. Uh, for the first floor, which is now standard. But then when you go to the building department, getting flooding information from when people rent, getting flooding information, evacuation information, doing a, um, uh, yearly and, uh, by annual uh, mailings to people to remind them of how to handle a flood emergency and these sorts of things. These are all uh, things that gain points in, the, in this flood uh, insurance system and allow you to lower your community's flood premiums. So we've 
but trying to work on levels uh, you know like that with communities because the hardening hardening of the infrastructure and say even natural solutions are way out of our scope you know that's the kind of thing that's going to happen on the state and federal level and we'll we can get so bogged down you know tom and i go back and forth about this all the time because lots of times he'll see a big picture item that he wants to go for and i keep dragging him back because it's like yeah but that's a black hole that we'll get lost in we don't have standing you know we're not a community and all we have are a bunch of guys with ideas whereas when we talk about your insurance uh premiums we can affect change much more quickly and that's what we've been doing with most communities is working on these things once people begin to see that that is advantageous then your ideas start to make more sense and things like well wouldn't a flooding cam and say warning lights when that thing's flooding, you know, that road's flooding make some sense for your community? Yeah. Okay. Well, let us go after funding for that for you. And because your people are busy and they're tied up trying to uh, deal with the day to day, let us, uh, you know, contact our friends at FEMA and see if we can't tie that into uh, an app that you'll put on your phone and, and in the end, save everybody some money on their insurance premiums and uh, claims. So that, that's been our, our, uh, you know, our modus operandi. Till now. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know there's various towns and that's like community ratings uh, scale, yes. right? From 10 to one, one is a 45% discounting your insurance. And we actually have two towns at the shore, Seattle city and Avalon. They're always in a little bit of competition with each other uh, that have a level three, which is 35%. There's only about a dozen or so towns in the country that get that. Um, Bill, you know, we appreciate this time. I mean, this was great. We'll have to have you come back. We'll have to talk about some more stories in New Guinea, too, <laughs> along with what you guys are doing at the Institute. NJCoastalCoalition.com is the website. But before we go, we have your New Jersey map. You're splitting up North, Central, and South Jersey. Now, I did not see it, but I heard that this could be a controversial map. So I'm going to click on it. We're going to pull it up for you, and let's see what we got here. All right, I got to I got to go a little bit. Okay. Okay. So, man, man, you know, I thought it was funny. So a couple months ago, we had, um, um, oh, my God, his name is slipping me. We had uh, um, Nick Underwood, uh, who was, who was a hurricane hunter for NOAA. And he had a map very similar to this where you have central Jersey in the northwest corner of the state. Why? Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist. And yes, yes. I know you're more skilled than most to answer this question. Yeah. Well, it just seems to me that uh, in addition to the north-south, you know, the geography, you have a sort of uh, cultural mix that makes up north-south New Jersey. And in my limited experience, obviously, the South Jersey, South Jersey. I, um, but when you're talking to northerners, South Jersey kind of creeps up to them where Point Pleasant is in South Jersey, where that doesn't seem to be South Jersey to me. And where the New York, you know, South Jersey begins where the New York influence wanes. But that middle part, I lived up in Sussex County for years, and um, it's just, it's just like those people are suburban commuter types. They don't have a strong affinity for New York or Philadelphia. Um, they don't have a strong affinity for the shore. Uh, their lives are tied up in getting places and it all, you know, and, and you know, it just starts, and unless you're in the mountains up North, it all kind of looks the same. <laughs> what mall are we going to? So. 
And, you know, I know you put middle there. Is there maybe a different word we could use in your uh, expertise? Be, uh, <laughs> a better that, one. I was trying to make sure I got that to you this morning. So I, I, I did. All right. Very interesting. Again, it's just I, 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 I thought so many people were almost on the same page, but apparently I have not opened my eyes up to the world. Okay, so so what at, is your, what do you, where does Central Jersey start to you? Well, so, okay, so my thought on this is we have North Jersey and Central Jersey divide at Route 78, with oh, okay. the exception of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is North Jersey. Then we have that border of Central to South from Trenton to Jackson. Then it goes from Jackson down to Tom's River. But during the summer months, you, go, <laughs> you draw it down to Stafford and into LBI because there's a, I, I know a lot of people, I grew up in Union, who went to LBI. So I feel like there's a northern influence there. Ah. That's me. I'll have to show you my map one day. But, Bill, we got to run here because we are running up against time. But we appreciate it. Uh, uh, you know, Best of luck to you guys with the Resiliency Institute. You know, I'm always talking to you and Tom. So I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up at least the two of us soon. And hopefully we'll have you on again. But th thanks a lot for the time, Bill. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.